Welcome to this podcast on leadership and COVID-19, jointly produced by Queen's University Belfast and Pivotal Public Policy Forum. The podcast is one of a series in which we'll be tapping into the expertise of researchers at Queen's and in the Pivotal Network to set out the ways in which evidence-based ideas and policies can help improve our society, economy and public services. I'm Richard English, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Internationalisation and Engagement at Queen's, and it's a pleasure now to hand over to Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal, to introduce the panel and to chair the discussion. My thanks to Professor Richard English for introducing this podcast on leadership during COVID-19. Welcome to all our listeners. We hope you find this discussion interesting and engaging. I'm pleased to be hosting this podcast brought to you by Queen's University Belfast and Pivotal. With me today, or in reality, joining me from the comfort of their own homes are Professor Ian Greer, President and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's University Belfast, positions he's held since August 2018. Professor Greer joined Queen's from the University of Manchester, where he was Vice President and Dean of the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health, Director of the Manchester Academic Health Science Centre and Chair of the Northern Health Science Alliance, a cross-sector collaboration of eight universities and NHS partners. Professor Greer was previously Pro Vice-Chancellor of the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences and Provost for Research at the University of Liverpool and is a former Dean of the Hull York Medical School. We welcome also Dr Joanne Murphy, Academic Director of the William J. Clinton Institute, Queen's University Management School and a Senior Lecturer in Queen's Management School. Her research explores leadership, change and organisation development in politically volatile environments. She's written extensively on policing, leadership and organisational change. And then we welcome Dr. Muris McCarthy, Senior Lecturer in Politics and Public Administration. Muris's research engages with a variety of debates within and between political science and public sector governance. His recent work has focused on the effects of the global financial crisis on national administrative systems. He's a member of the steering committee of the European Group for Public Administration. So welcome to you all and thank you for taking part today. Um, my name is Anne Watt. I'm the director of Pivotal, the new independent public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. Pivotal aims to help improve public policy in Northern Ireland by increasing the use of research and evidence and by involving more people in public policy discussions. Although an independent think tank, Pivotal benefits from academic partnerships with Queen's University and Ulster University. One aspect of this is being involved in discussions with academics like this podcast today about current public policy issues. So across the world, leaders in different sectors are facing perhaps the biggest challenge of their careers, whether that's in healthcare, government, business, international organisations or education, to name a few. COVID-19 is an unprecedented global shock requiring leaders to make difficult decisions, to provide stability and confidence to those under their leadership and to empower others to give their best in hugely challenging situations. What has the COVID crisis taught us about leadership? How have leaders differed in their approaches? 
Has COVID brought out the best or maybe the worst in leaders? To begin the conversation with our panel, I have a short kickoff question for you. So I'm just asking each of you for a brief answer at this stage. So starting with Professor Ian Greer, what would you say are the main characteristics of good leadership? Well, thinking specifically about the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it was really important to listen carefully, rapidly analyse the situation, and then set out the vision for where we as an organisation had to get to. Um, but reaching that point is only possible through co-creation, working in partnership, not just with our staff, but with outside bodies. In our case, in the university with the Department of Health, with the public uh, health agencies, uh, and with the health trusts around Northern Ireland to be able to make a real difference and to manage the situation to the best uh, for, for the best outcome, not just for the university, but for the society that Queen's serves. So that piece about co-creation is really important, but you've got to set the vision, the destination of where we're trying to get to as an organisation and do it in a timely manner. So from a Queen's perspective, in the immediate uh, phase, we had to rapidly uh, change from being an on-campus organisation to an online organisation, which we did in three weeks, which was an incredible achievement and only possible by that co-creation, co-development piece with our staff. Thank you. Um, Dr Joanne Murphy, what would you say are the main characteristics of good leadership? So I think it's really important that when we're talking about leadership, we're actually talking about the concept, I suppose, rather than leaders, because, you know, the vice chancellor makes an excellent point. Leadership is very often a collective endeavor and something that we see at all levels of organizations. It isn't just positional at the top. And in order for leadership to to really make a difference and to really to be impactful, you really need to understand it in that kind of collective way. Now, undoubtedly, there are behaviors and practices that are more effective than others. And again, you know, the idea of investment visioning you know what you can do um, engaging people in order to be able to do it and enabling that activity by by allowing people to um, to engage themselves in the endeavor are all incredibly important I think what we also see with people who operate you know uh, um, uh, in terms of leadership very well is an ability to inquire in a way that is really meaningful and to develop some of those thoughts and again in a way that engages the people around them. Great, thanks Joanne. Um, Dr Mears McCarthy, the same question, what would you say are the main characteristics of good leadership? Yeah, well, there's, uh, and Joanne obviously works a lot more in the area than me, but I mean, there's um, a huge body of literature uh, on this work, and there are lots of different models and um, uh, frameworks and types of, of, of leadership styles and so on. But the one to me that I've always found that I think is unbeatable is is the idea of uh, values-based leadership, because ultimately this is this is what you fall back on in in a crisis and and this is a major crisis and when nobody knows what to do and nobody does know what to do i mean nobody has full competence in how to deal with covid-19 um you you fall back on a, on a set of values that that will guide your your judgment and your activities and and in this case so we're talking here about things like transparency you know just being open and saying well what are the rates of infection what are the deaths um uh, in in uh, integrity okay so not not saying you need you know not expecting others to do things you won't do yourselves which is of course why the whole Dominic Cummings issue was such a such a controversy um and, and of course accountability and this will I'm sure we'll come back to this but you know admitting and identifying when you got things wrong I mean I'll say this is how we're addressing it and this is how we're dealing with it because there's overwhelmingly strong evidence that the public 
or your clients are more likely to to work with you if they believe you're you're being um, transparent and that you're being accountable and that you're admitting to to mistakes. So as I say, this this idea of um, a, a strong set of values that that you stick to uh, is quite important. It seems to me. Thank you uh, to the three of you for those uh, opening answers. I think we got clearly there the need for co-creation, working with others, um, engaging others, and enabling others. Um, the importance of values, um, how these, how, how your values become really important in an under pressure crisis situation, and the importance of responding quickly and, and setting a vision for others. So um, thank you for that. Now moving on to some longer responses. Um, so I've got an opening question for each of you in your area of expertise. So starting, starting with Joanne, um, from your work on leadership during crises, what can you tell us about the characteristics of good leadership in challenging situations? So this is a really interesting area and you know what we're beginning to see within the study of leadership and within management and organisational studies is an increasing interest in what we would call extreme environments or, or extreme contexts and so while we think that these are quite unusual environments the reality is that they're not you know policing organisations work within extreme environments almost all the time you know there you know hospitals or extreme environments high reliability organisations you make a mistake you really pay for that mistake you know so we actually know quite a lot about how these contexts work so uh, you know we're, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the pandemic has encouraged a much greater debate then about the types of leadership practices that lead to the most positive outcomes within this these kind of extreme and contested spaces so why is it so difficult then and to to practice leadership and to lead within these kind of environments well the first thing is that volatility in crisis creates a certain set of conditions that makes leadership particularly challenging. The first one is, and, and you know the, the Vice Chancellor in particular, this won't come as a surprise, but decision-making time is really compressed within, it, within an environment of crisis. Suddenly you've got to make decisions very quickly, you've got very little time to, to gather the kind of information that you would want in another environment, but you've got to be moving you know, in a very paced way through those situations. At the same time as decision-making is compressed complexity increases so you're not just talking about um, a normal environment you're talking about trying to understand a level of complexity that goes way beyond the organizational boundaries so that is something that the that, that leaders and people within with with leadership roles within organizations find very very difficult to hold in their heads and to keep sense of as you move through those kind of spaces. Um, the other thing about volatile environments, and, and again, I think the VC uh, alluded to it earlier, is that you know volatile environments are highly dynamic. Things happen really, really quickly. You know, you're moving at a pace which a lot of people are very unused to, uh, and they're also interconnected and interdependent. You know, and so if you put all that together, you know, suddenly you know you're in a situation which is which is for leaders themselves very often quite unusual, uh, and of course. Your actions at that time, um, uh, the outcomes of those actions are intensified as well. If you get something wrong, it can be very wrong. At the same time, if you get something right, it can be very right. So faced with this kind of urgency and this kind of complexity, a lot of leaders and what we see from, you know, from research and what we see from the evidence is that a lot of leaders tend to default to what we would call formal power structures. And that results in try people trying to keep information to themselves, you know, closing ranks a bit in terms of their behaviours, protect 
protecting themselves. But the one thing we know about a crisis and an extreme context or an extreme environment or something of this level of volatility that you're facing is that is the absolute worst thing you can do. So where we see the best possible outcomes in these type of situations are far more towards what we would call transformational leadership behaviors so there are behaviors you know that that create better outcomes but also lead to increased organizational cohesion in terms of what's happening within the environment now those behaviors include actually a propensity to share power to share information you know to share responsibility as well in terms of what's going on to build pretty diverse decision making groups you know we know from a lot of leadership research that the more diverse in every sense your decision making group is is the better your decisions are and the less prone you are to the really difficult uh, behaviors that we see which can sometimes result in groupthink which is 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 really really negative in a situation like this and the most important thing that that we see that leads to really good outcomes is leaders and those in 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 uh, who adopt a leadership role drawing on what is sometimes called a social network of leadership internally and externally and that social network of leadership building you know that network and relying on that network allows people um to to move forward together and enables collective action and that's really what you're looking for in these type of situations so that's what the that's what the research that's what the evidence tells us about those behaviors and that of course is not easy you know it's it's something that you know a lot of people struggle with you know you know letting go of a little bit of that control whenever possibly the tendency is to grab as much control as you can but we know certainly that that by by looking outwards by listening even more than normal by allowing that collective process to take place that's where you get the best possible outcomes in a crisis situation great thanks joanne i think you know very clearly it's coming across there that leaders need to be open they need to be working with others they need to be involving others they need to be sharing responsibility for decision making so moving on to Dr. Mears McCarthy, Mears, what can we learn about good leadership from looking at how different countries have addressed COVID-19? Okay, so, um, well, since the turn of the millennium, um, uh, depressingly, we've, we've had three major crises. If we go back almost 20 years, um, we had the September the 11th attacks, uh, 9-11, and then just over a decade ago, we had the, the Great Recession. Um, with, and, and the subsequent lost decade uh, in terms of economic growth that people talk about. And now we have this, this pandemic, which makes the other two even combined look like a picnic in terms of the extraordinary levels of uh, state intervention and activity that have um, been necessitated as a result of it. And I, I guess two, two things come out of this. Um, first of all, the need for um, what you might call strong uh, state capacity that leaders will have, uh, I'm thinking here, political leaders primarily, um, will have at their disposal. So um, administrative systems that are agile, that are able to respond quickly. Um, in the case of the pandemic, I mean, there's virtually no aspect of the state. Uh, we think a lot about the public health system, but everything, you know, central banks, um, uh, defence forces, police, uh, everything has been activated in response to the pandemic. So being able to to mobilise those in a coherent way, and in some cases it involves moving across national borders, which which the virus doesn't recognise. So this is a um, very important element, first of all, uh, the strong state capacity. And secondly, and, and we've maybe touched a little bit touched on this a little bit already with the Vice Chancellor's comments about how you respond immediately to the crisis is about how 
you need to bring in non-state actors. Now, this is not just because of the pandemic. This has been something that's been happening over the last 20 years, the greater infusion um, within governments, certainly in the Western world, of experts of different um, backgrounds and of, of from different uh, areas, as it were. And at the moment, I mean, you only have to look at the news every evening and you will see, you know, uh, um, medical academics and, and so on becoming household names and that the, the sort of provision of medical advice and for politicians to give way in some issues and say, look, these are the people who know better um, about this has been very important. However, as a political scientist by training, um, I'm not someone to knock politicians. And, you know, there has to be political. There is a room for political ex experts, as it were, because ultimately they are accountable for the responses of the state. Um, the medical experts can only bring things so far. Um, I don't think anybody would want a country to be run by medical uh, practitioners generally. Um, but politicians have to step in as well. So I think these these two issues about a strong state capacity and and secondly that ability to bring in expert advice appropriately um but not to not to dodge the political responsibility either um is quite important thank you Mears. i i suppose we've seen really really clearly that that balance between um scientific advice medical advice coming to politicians yeah. and then politicians having to make those decisions so um that's very helpful and again we get very clearly a theme of uh, working together, of partnership, of sharing expertise and so on. So moving on to Professor Ian Greer, um, dealing with COVID has seen universities play a distinctive role in partnership with others. Could you talk about some of the contributions that Queen's has made? Yes, very happy to to, to share these contributions with you. And, and, I, and I would say in terms of delivering them, I think Joanne has captured the, the key approach that we've taken with regards to the, our approach to decision-making and transparency, especially when we didn't know the answers to many of the questions, but we did have to provide as much certainty as possible to staff, <clears throat> even if that certainty was talking about uncertainties at times. So I guess the university response is, a, is in two components, and both had to be done simultaneously. The first was the acute response to COVID, and the second was how do we maintain the university in a position where it can respond uh, to meet the needs of economic recovery come the autumn when we think that most of the acute phase will have died down. So we were able rapidly to move through our major incident team into that acute response. And the impact of that is not just within the organisation, it's across Northern Ireland, I believe. Um, for example, we've worked very closely with the Department of Health, the Public um, Health Agency, Health and Social Care Trusts across Northern Ireland because we've got significant responsibilities. And again, I would refer back to the, the value-based uh, approach to leadership, which is really important. Queen's University is at the centre of Northern Ireland society, the Northern Ireland economy, and we've got a real responsibility there. So we were able to graduate our medical, nursing, social work students early. Uh, so that they could join the workforce, be in the front line, make a real difference. Um, many of our full-time uh, clinical, uh, sorry, many of our academics working in the clinical field were able to move into full-time NHS activity to fill some gaps there. We've been doing significant research work <clears throat> to combat the virus uh, with research on the uh, nature of the disease and whether there are any drugs out there already licensed that could deal with this virus. We've done trials on interventions such as stem, th stem cell therapies to rescue the damaged lungs or on different approaches to uh, ventilation. 
So we've been playing a part there. In our engineering schools, we've been manufacturing PPE equipment. So our School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering have manufactured over 6,000 reusable face shields and 13,000 door openers for our local NHS and social care trusts. And of course, our academics have been offering advice uh, and their expertise uh, to politicians and other bodies as we try and navigate our way through that. So that's the acute response, and that came on top of the, the internal university reorganisation where we switched to an online organisation, as I said earlier, delivering all our courses, assessments, uh, examinations online. The second phase is positioning ourselves for the economic recovery. Now, in, in many organisations, the natural response to this pandemic, which is also bringing a serious financial crisis, as I'm sure you're aware, by cutting. And of course, we have to contain our costs. But if we look beyond that acute phase, we actually need to be investing because Queen's is at the heart of the Northern Ireland economy. We drive £1.9 billion of economic impact every year. And we do that through both skills development and our research and innovation, which does lead to significant economic growth. So while we had to deal with that acute crisis and contain costs and do things efficiently and rapidly progress online, we also had to have an eye to the autumn, to when the campus reopened. We had to listen to our students, both home and international, telling us that they didn't want an online experience. They wanted a campus experience. So how did we reopen our campus? How did we make sure that our researchers were still in position, able to start working to drive the economy forward? How did we ensure that we were meeting the needs of society because in an economic downturn such as this, there is usually an increased interest in people pursuing educational activities to develop their own careers. So the second part of our component has been to be looking ahead to try and predict that. And a good example might be uh, some short courses we've introduced very rapidly in software development and in supply chain management to reskill people and take them from one sector of the economy into another with a postgraduate certificate course that allows them to access a new career, a career in a knowledge-based economy as we emerge from this crisis. So we didn't have these courses two months ago. We rapidly developed them. We marketed them. We got support from the Department for the Economy. And for our first course in software development, we had over 700 applicants and we were able to increase the number of places and offers from 100 to 150. And we need to do more of that, that short-term response to build skills, as well as make sure we've got a fantastic graduate uh, pipeline uh, being developed, and of course, couple that with our research. So those two phases have been important, and that, that acute response, how we transitioned online, how we dealt with the, the issues, but also more forward-looking to prepare for our responsibility in leading the economy out of this recession. Thank you, Ian. And I think very clearly there we get the need to look beyond the immediate crisis. You know, you talked about the acute response and all the pressing issues. And you talked about the breadth of those across the university, but also needing to look, leaders need to look further ahead as well and think about reco the recovery phase as well. OK, so um, moving on from that really interesting conversation so far. So thank you for your contribution. So I'm going to ask Joanne now. Um, a feature of strong leadership is recognising mistakes and learning from them. How have we seen examples of that during COVID-19? 
So isn't this a fantastic question, you know, because this goes right to the heart of some of the big challenges around leadership at the moment. I mean, one of the things that we, you know, we do see is leaders who are able to recognize, admit and then, you know, take action in relation to mistakes or errors that have been made. But at the moment, there is very little tolerance for leaders admitting mistakes. And that creates real challenges in terms of governance and how we're able to properly govern. And I'm not just talking about political governance here. You know, Muris is, is far better versed in, in those kind of issues than I am. But it creates issues at organisational level. And I think that's something that we have to think about. The ability for people to be able to say, well, you know something, in that instance, I got it wrong. You know, and this is what I'm going to do to try to fix it. So if we, if we set that aside, I suppose, for a minute... Um, one of the things that I've thought has been incredibly interesting about this process and about the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the difficulties that are around it is the is the, the leadership that's been provided by supranational organizations. So if you look at the World Health Organization in particular, you know, there was a, a very famous interview done by, I think his name was, was Dr. Michael Ryan, who's originally from Ireland, talking about his experience in terms of the Ebola epidemic. And he talked about the most important thing is about learning from your mistakes and the stakes and the mistakes that they had made in relation to other ep epidemics in the past. Um, and he said something which I think was really, really interesting. He said, you must be the first mover. If you need to be right before you move, you're never going to win. The greatest mistake is to be scared to make a mistake. And I think that goes again back to this idea of decisive leadership, you know, of being brave enough, of having the courage, you know, to, to, to move forward. You know, we say within leadership development courses to people a lot of the time, you can't be scared to make a decision. You have to make a decision. It's a bit like, you know, football. I don't know very much about football, but I do know that if you're playing football and the ball lands at your feet, you kick it. You know, you don't stand and think about it for a while. You know, really important to have the courage to take to take a decision and to move the system forward. And that's something, you know, which is very difficult at the moment because mistakes are punished incredibly heavily. And I do think that that stifles good leadership, good decision making, good governance. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if there's, you know, you know what else we can really say. I, I worry about this the concept of strong leadership. We are beginning to see strong men leaders around the world. And that concerns me because that tends to, again, to stifle the kind of diversity and debate where really good leadership comes up. Thanks, Joanne. I'm wondering, Muris, if you've anything to add on that from a point of view of political leadership. Um, Joanne talked about how there yes. isn't much tolerance of mistakes in political yeah. life that's right it's difficult i mean it's been in some respects uh it's, it's a slightly bizarre thing to say but the the pandemic has exposed a lot about how governments work and uh, or don't work uh, as it were and you know some of the most successful countries that we're aware of at the moment um if you look for example at south korea um it came down extremely hard early on and has been very successful in, in sort of trying to put a cap on the spread of the virus. And a lot of this stems from 2015 when they had another coronavirus outbreak there, the MERS crisis, which we've heard um, a little bit about and that it's genetically uh, similar to uh, COVID-19. Um, and the uh, what happened then was that the government failed to act quickly and there was a uh, feeling that it was a disproportionately heavy casualty toll because of that and that was in 2015 and so the lessons were learned there and so South Korea as soon as it got a whiff of this this new virus came in very very quickly um, 
And generally speaking, um, across the globe, um, you know, there's there's sort of two broad categories of government at the moment. There's those who acted early um, from, you know, January to, to May um, very effectively to to protect the lives of their citizens and mobilise and got their administrative systems working quite quickly. And the second group that, that um, I suppose, failed initially and then have had to recover and have had to um, play catch up to get on top of controlling the virus. Uh, and, you know, there's two issues at play there, really, for the second group. First of all, there's the uh, inadequate preparation. Uh, a lot of countries would have had, you know, pandemics somewhere on their list of things to worry about, but say, well, we'll worry about that tomorrow. Um, and secondly, the as we've already discussed, um, you know, the not responding in, in the right way uh, with the wrong strategy and, you know, leaving it to others or leaving it to somebody further down the, the hierarchy, but not not taking it seriously enough early on and recognizing the gravity of the situation. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of lessons learned uh, out of this for for states about the the reality, I guess, of some of these um, these global crises that you know we keep talking about it, but you know no state is immune um, to these to issues like global pandemics, of course. I think really interesting you you mentioned there, Muris, the the state of preparedness of uh, different yeah. governments and how uh, how some governments from past experience could see what was coming and were much more, I suppose, um, informed perhaps about what was coming. Moving on to, to Professor Ian Greer, most organisations of any size, businesses, governments, public bodies, universities, will have contingency plans in place for crisis situations. From your experience, how effective were these plans in helping leaders deal with COVID-19? I think they were effective to a point, and I say to a point because this is an unprecedented uh, time with very uncharted uh, ways to, to, to manage it. And picking up Joanne's footballing analogy, uh, although the ball might land at your feet, the good footballer has seen the pass coming, whether it's a short pass or a long pass, scanned his horizon, and really importantly, he knows where his team members are. He doesn't have to think because he knows that if you're playing as a team, the team will be in position. And so you can make a very effective pass. And that's why it's important to have that broad leadership base that we discussed earlier. So from a university perspective, I can talk about how we responded. We did have a major incident plan. A major incident team sat behind that. That was really invaluable in getting things moving. They met on a daily basis. Many of the challenges they saw had not been anticipated because we hadn't expected anything of this magnitude and this type. But we were able to deal with it because we were agile and we used a wide range of our leaders to solve the problems and to do that problem solving in co-creation with our staff and outside agencies. Um, and at the same time, we had that second phase assessment of what do we need to reopen? What does the economy need going forward? Um, and we were able to, to balance these across the organisation, but only by working as quite a big team with a lot of devolved uh, decision-making and consideration of what the options were, and of course, making a plan very quickly. And the overriding issue, I guess, was the safety and well-being both of our students and our staff, which is why uh, we have been shut down for so long and why we've been very careful about opening, but equally communicating very clearly now, including to the media, what we were doing as a university in terms of reopening, what the campus would look like, what students could expect, what staff would have to deliver and how flexible we'd be in dealing with it. Because we're not through this pandemic yet. We don't know what the situation is going to be like in September. 
And while we can be clear about our intentions, we also have to be clear that we can react and change to meet the needs of any public health issue that's in play at the time. So we think we've got a, a major role, as I've said, in that acute response, but perhaps more importantly now, the focus is turning on to that social and economic recovery piece. Now, earlier we were talking about the um, the acute response and then the, the longer-term response, and, and, and Professor Greer just mentioned that. Now, during a crisis, it's tempting to focus on dealing with that crisis to the detriment of other priority issues. How have we seen that happen in different governments' responses to COVID? Muris, do you want to start us on that one? Sure, yes. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the two words that keep coming to my mind and um, throughout all of this are, are uh, opportunity costs. And basically, you know, if you weren't dealing with um, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, what else could you have been doing uh, and uh, with your energies and, and resources and so on? Um, there's there's a huge, enormous trade-off uh, between the, the virus control interventions and, you know, first of all, obviously the economic consequences for us all. Um, and we know from historical experience that, you know, prolonged government interventions in, in society and in the economy have have big um, downside impacts on, on overall economic and social uh, well-being. Um, and we've just seen massive, I mean, who would have thought of this even a year ago, you know, huge um, levels of state intervention into healthcare systems, into uh, social welfare provision, uh, manufacturing, the personal protective equipment, the PPE. And this, as the Vice Chancellor said, we, we don't know when this is going to end and um, that the legacy, the trail of this is going to go on for years. Um, and, and in some respects, it's it's all a, a suspended um, reality. I mean, as the as the tide recedes on this, we're going to be left with some huge uh, social problems. Unemployment is going to be a, a massive issue. Um, so yeah, there's there's going to be effects. I mean, places, institutions like universities are going to have a very distinctive role to help people get back into the labour force and to retrain and and so on. Um, but the 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 costs of this um, are really. Um, are, are extraordinary. They're, they're huge and it'll take quite some time to, to figure it out and to, to address them. And Professor Greer said, you know, we're obviously not through this yet. You know, we're not through the pandemic, but we're, we're certainly only at the very, very start of the uh, long recovery from it in terms of the, the economic damage that's being done. Um, just Professor Greer, to follow up on that, in responding to the immediate COVID crisis, how have universities managed to keep a focus on other issues as well? Well, that's only possible by using your whole leadership team, as we discussed earlier. There have been so many bases that, that we had to cover, um, and some of them had been unpredicted, that we did have to function as a team, taking responsibility for areas such as the strategy for emerging in the economy, taking responsibility for developing these new courses to respond very rapidly to the needs of the economy and reskilling, thinking about the acute response, the health on campus issues, how do we market the university for international students? It was very wide ranging. And so you can only deal with that well using the whole devolved uh, leadership team to take things forward. And of course, every organisation will make mistakes and some of these mistakes won't be evident until we look back and we, we analyse this. But I would agree with the points made, I think, by Joanne about the speed of response that's needed here. And that was that was true both for the acute phase and indeed 
for the recovery phase where we've been making um, decisions quite quickly about reskilling courses, about what type of campus we want to have, about how we're going to get our international students here. Indeed, we've started running our own flights direct from Beijing to Belfast International to get international students here bypassing London. So we've been making a lot of very quick decisions based on the information that we can have with a, both a short-term view for the, the immediacy of the, the problems on campus and a longer-term view to the needs of the economy. Thinking about these <coughs> economy needs and looking at our responsibility, we've got to drive this economy and we can do it directly and indirectly. So indirectly we could drive it, for example, by developing some of our capital uh, projects, bringing in business to the construction industry in Belfast, which would be very welcome. <clears throat> we can also do it by that reskilling piece, and we can do it by maximising the number of students from Northern Ireland who want to stay here this year. They don't want to emigrate, as it were. And as you know, we lose about 5,000 students from Northern Ireland each year to Great Britain for their education. How can we possibly maximise our numbers to keep people in Northern Ireland who want to stay, who want to go to Queen's or Ulster for the university? So we've been working very hard with the Department for the Economy to look at how we offer the maximum flexibility on our student numbers really to drive that forward. Now, a big opportunity that we have in that partnership field are the city and regional growth deals for Northern Ireland. They're all on the table, they're all at different stages, but we've got an opportunity to make a real difference. The Belfast Region City deal, for example, is worth well over £800 million of new investment to the city region. That can be transformative. If we can put that in play very quickly, think of the construction work that will bring. Think about the, the new investment in companies coming here to take advantage of the innovation opportunities. Innovation opportunities in creative industries, in advanced manufacturing, in health research, in digital technologies, areas where we're really strong already. So if we could bring forward that investment and do it very quickly, have that high-speed decision-making that we talked about, we can really start to emerge from this as a different Northern Ireland in a better position and meet the needs of our population, both economically and socially. But we only do it by working as a team, a Northern Ireland team. And I think it's really important in addressing the, the, the chronic problems that we're going to face here if we do it as Team Northern Ireland. Yep. Thank you for that, Ian. I think um, that chimes very well with a report, Pivotal, published just this week about the uh, a new economic vision for Northern Ireland where the Northern Ireland executive needs to respond not just to the problems of COVID in terms of the immediate impact, but also the, the much longer standing weaknesses in our economy, like low productivity and competitiveness and low levels of skills. And you, you've talked there about some very important ways that we can do that. Um, moving on to a slightly different way to look at this, um, Joanne, I want to ask you, thinking about different leadership approaches, um, have we seen gender differences in how male and female leaders have dealt with COVID? So this is a big area of discussion at the moment, you know, and you can, you know, even from a scan of the news and the media and different country responses, you can understand why people are beginning to think about it. I suppose, you know, to start off, we know that in general, and these are all generalizations, so so I don't want anyone coming at me and shouting at me that they don't behave like this. <laughs> but, but in very general terms, we know that men and women tend to lead differently. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that we're, you know, that we're pretty clear about and that the evidence is, is pretty much there from the research 
church. Um, we also tend to see that what we would call transformational leadership behavior. So this idea of sharing information, of bringing people into the leadership circle, of trying to, to work collectively, tends to be something we would see in female leaders during processes of, of upheaval more than we would see in male leaders. Um, and, and we know that these transformational behaviours in crisis, you know, are certainly more successful and achieve better outcomes. And also, really importantly, increased organisational behaviour and increased organisational cohesion. So the sort of collective, you know, um, the collective practices that we talked a bit about um, earlier are really important and really significant. So whether, you know, you're, you know, you know, from whatever direction you're coming at in terms of gender, I think the most important thing is to look at these particular practices you know which all leaders you know which are available to all leaders and to look at how they can be better used within organizations that are facing any kind of a crisis or a, a volatile environment you know and you know and that is about you know sharing power sharing information and building these diverse decision making groups you know that we've mentioned already I suppose you know the other thing that I'd like to pick up on is just this area of organizational resilience, you know, and we've talked a wee bit about that in terms of contingencies and responses. And and that's, you know, that's a really important thing to be thinking about because when we talk about organizational resilience, we're talking about this idea of foresight, you know, looking at the horizon, seeing what's coming, having an understanding of how your organization is able to adapt to it, having insight as well as foresight. So, you know, so maybe understanding where your strengths and your weaknesses lie. Um, having an oversight in terms of your response and then the most important thing and I think this is where the real leadership challenge regardless of gender sits at the moment hindsight learning from what you did you know work looking at what worked well looking at maybe what could have worked better and trying to pull those responses together to build more resilient organizations and teams you know leaders can't do this on their own you know we have been we've sat now for for decades possibly centuries with a, a sort of heroic ideal of leadership where the leader comes in riding on their white charger you know and fixes everything but we know the reality isn't that you know team you know leadership is a team endeavor you have to work together you have to bring your team with you and that's the most important thing regardless of gender I think. Great thank you Joanne I think that's that's really helpful in in, in showing us the characteristics of good leaders which may come in males or females of course but actually absolutely. it's all about it's all about that collective uh, working together collectively, sharing information, default decision making and so on. Now, moving on to, to Muris, um, just a couple of questions left, I think. So, um, Muris, um, COVID-19 landed very shortly after the Northern Ireland executive was re-established following three years without government here. What do you think political leaders in Northern Ireland have learnt from dealing with COVID-19? And what does that mean for government in Northern Ireland going forward? Yeah, it's it's um, well, it's certainly been a very sharp uh, learning curve for those who are new to office, or indeed those who already had experience of, of office here because of uh, this, the scale of this. But as you say, the um, in January the, the new decade, new approach document was launched, and it just it does feel a little bit like a, a different lifetime at the moment. Um, at the time, the issues were the you know there was classic industrial relations matters were to the fore there, in nurses and teachers pay, police numbers. Um, you know, Brexit issues, Brexit is, remains rumbling on in the background, um, issues around infrastructure development, um, RHI inquiry reforms, all of these things. Um, and they, they, you know, they've instantly been put on the back burner uh, to deal with the pandemic. And I suppose um, what's been interesting has been um, 
to to see the nature of um, I suppose all the parties coming together quite quite quickly to deal as best as they can uh, and to collaborate. I mean, this idea of working together to do something that you you just can't do in your own, and that's been vital to deal with the relatively um, comparatively low. Uh, numbers of virus um, of, of deaths and uh, infections related to the virus here um, and good yeah and, and the classic issues there again about good communications around transparency about um, involving again the example of the, the um, medical experts coming to the fore involving them at the right time and uh, trying to get your your administrative system uh, all aspects of it uh, working together again. Uh, but there's going to be, I mean, there's going to have to be some very, very serious and tough uh, economic decisions made uh, as everywhere um, as this as this recedes and as the lockdown lifts and as hopefully we don't have to deal with a, a second wave, although that is a distinct possibility across the globe. Um, I mean, the pandemic, in the midst of all this, we forget the pandemic is getting worse globally. It's just closer to home mm -hmm. that we seem to have put a, put a lid on it. Uh, but the, the scale of it is frightening in, uh, internationally. Um, but it's to prepare. I think there's, you know, again, the, there's going to be important lessons here about getting ready for the potential of a second wave. And I don't think anybody would think that would be a, a waste of energy or resources at the moment. Thanks, Muris. Um, so, having come through the immediate crisis of COVID-19, leaders now face the challenge of restarting the economy and rebuilding public services. So, just um, asking Ian, um, what do you see as the challenges for the Northern Ireland economy going forward and how will good leadership contribute to meeting those challenges? Well, I, I think the decisions that we need to make to address these challenges are effectively with us now because we've got to be deciding now how we're going to start the recovery process. So as you know from the pivotal report, the economic challenge to Northern Ireland is considerable. Considerable because we're starting at a lower point, if you will, in our economic development than other parts of the UK. We know, for example, that Northern Ireland gets substantially less public sector R&D investment, and that R&D investment drives um, growth in industry, growth in businesses, attracts FDI and creates a virtuous cycle. But, you know, for example, we get around a quarter of what London receive in public sector R&D, or around a third of what Scotland get for public sector R&D. So we're starting from a lower point, and the impact, the economic impact from the COVID-19 pandemic, I believe, and I think your report highlights this, will be worse in Northern Ireland than most other places in the UK. So to start the recovery process, we've got to think about how we deliver that investment, how we get through that change. And I would go back to my point about the Belfast Region City deal and the other regional growth deals. If we can bring them forward and not let them take several years to gestate and come about, if we can start moving them now, we get jobs in the construction industry, we start marshalling our assets in health innovation, for example, and we've shown very good uh, opportunities for health innovation with our response to COVID when we put together a, fa a fabulous um, consortium from the universities, the private sector, the public sector to make the Northern Ireland testing system work really quickly with good capacity. So we can do things in health innovation, we can do things in the digital space, we know we can work in the creative industries. If we can get the right investments in place really quickly, we can probably start that catching up process that we need for our economy. But the decisions really have to be made now, and I would emphasise the decisions need to be made from a Northern Ireland team approach. We've got to deliver the best for Northern Ireland, and we'll only do that by that partnership working. 
That partnership working has already, as you've heard from Eurish, been shown to be effective in our government when we come together in a crisis, and I think we can do the same economically. Great, and I think it's 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 good. I think to uh, end with that as the as the challenge that we need to act quickly as uh, collectively in Northern Ireland, um, and we need to act together um, if we're going to recover well from from COVID. Um, unfortunately, we need to end it there. Um, just running out of time, but can I say thank you to our three participants? I think that's been a really interesting and stimulating conversation. I think what's come across to me is a, is a is a huge a huge challenge, I suppose, to the, the popular perception as leadership being about individual strong leaders, but actually leadership is much more about a collective partnership. It's actually about letting go of decision making to others. In, in many cases, it's about involving a, a wide and diverse range of people in that decision making. And, and really importantly, it's about it's about sharing information and good communication. Um, and I was really interested in just this this uh, the balance between the acute recovery. The leaders have to find a way to lead the acute recovery, but also think about the longer term as well. Um, and I, I suppose that the final thing I'd highlight is the whole th the whole point about not being afraid to make decisions. I really liked Joanne's quote about not being not being afraid to make a, a mistake. That leaders need to in many cases act really quickly and act very decisively um, and they shouldn't be afraid to make a mistake and they should be learning from what happens there you know learning from those mistakes trying to build the resilience of their organizations so we've covered a lot of ground there about leadership in, in 45 minutes can i say thank you to the panel today for sharing their insights and experience it was certainly an interesting and stimulating and I think challenging conversation. So thank you to Professor Ian Greer, Dr. Joanne Murphy and Dr. Muris McCarthy. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you, you enjoyed the discussion. And um, please do look out for the previous podcast in this series from Queen's and Pivotal on the economic impact of COVID in Northern Ireland. It's well worth a listen as we think about how the economy here recovers. Join us for the next podcast in this COVID-19 in Northern Ireland series from Queen's and Pivotal, which will be about the impacts of COVID on education. So there's plenty to talk about there. Thank you for listening today.